if there's no reason why and there's no real burning desire, it's going to be challenging for that person. Like you have to go all in and you got to want it because that first phase is going to be very uncomfortable. You're going to be nervous. You're going to be scared. There's going to be risks. You're going to be out of your comfort zone. It's physically going to be challenging for a while. Like you just got to want it bad enough. And people ask me all the time, like, how did you do it? I'm like, I just wanted it more than you did. Like my kid was on oxygen in the hospital. I couldn't be there with him. I would have eaten through a brick wall to like build this thing. So you got to find that fire within you. That's just, I'm not going to stop until I get the deal until I lose the weight until this happens. Too many people quit before they get that final result. Welcome to the Business Muscle Podcast, where we empower entrepreneurs to transform their businesses into unstoppable empires. I'm Elise, CPA turned serial entrepreneur. And I'm Arielle, a seasoned physical therapist and business owner. We're two female entrepreneurs with a passion for helping small business owners like you achieve massive success. With our combined expertise, we've scaled to an impressive seven businesses in less than seven years. And guess what? Each of them was profitable right from the start. But we didn't stop there. We're here to share our secrets, strategies, and insider tips to help you turn your business into a thriving reality. And hey, we're not just all about business. As a physical therapist and fitness instructor, we'll also sprinkle in some fitness and wellness tips along the way. Join us on the Business Muscle Podcast every Monday as we guide you step-by-step towards financial freedom and building the business of your dreams. It's time to level up your business. Get ready to flex your business muscle. Today, we are thrilled to have Mike Shogren on the podcast. Seven years ago, he had a life-changing event where he decided he was done trading time for money in the corporate world and decided to get into the world of real estate through short-term rentals. He launched his own short-term rental business, starting with just one rental property. And by the end of the first year, he had 15 he was managing. And today, he has over 80 properties. His most recent purchase and launch is Salem's newest fully renovated boutique hotel, called The Cove at Salem. He is the go-to guy for all things short-term rentals with over 90,000 followers on Instagram. He runs his own short-term rental podcast called STR Secrets. His own mastermind called STR Secrets, where he trains hundreds of people, myself included, on how to run their Airbnbs and short-term rentals. This guy is just a wealth of knowledge, and we are thankful we got to steal him for a few minutes today to chat. So welcome, Mike. That was quite an intro. Thank you for I having me. I'm out of breath. Mic drop. Wow. Yeah, this is probably our longest intro to date, but welcome, Mike. Before we get started, because you're in the whole world of real estate, a lot of people might not be super familiar. Can you just give us an overview of the difference between like the traditional long-term rentals, STRs, short-term rentals, and then what co-hosting is? Sure. So, uh, you know, traditional rentals is you go out, you purchase single family home, a duplex, an apartment complex, whatever, and you get somebody in there for a year. They sign a one-year lease or a two-year lease, and that's pretty much it, right? You collect your rent every single month. Um, short-term rentals, a lot of people, you know, it's like Kleenex for tissues, right? They just assume Airbnb, right? So Airbnb is a platform that you can operate short-term rentals, and basically you're renting a property out by the night instead of by the year. And so the analogy I like to use is if you you know, if you go to Costco and you buy a 20 pack of Poland spring water bottle, it's five bucks. But if you go to Fenway park and you buy one water, it's going to be 10 bucks, right? So we're essentially taking the same asset and just selling it by the night. And you're able to charge a premium by doing that. And so the cool thing about short-term rentals is there's really three different ways that you can get in. 
So you can obviously go out and purchase a property. There's a lot of different financing options. Um, if you're more strapped for cash, like I was at the beginning, um, there's something called rental arbitrage where you can go and rent a house from somebody, you furnish it, and then you re-rent it on a platform like Airbnb. And then there's something called co-hosting, which is similar to property management where you find it, an investor or homeowner that has a, say a vacation rental in Florida, you manage everything, you set up the listing, you help build it out, you deal with all the guests, turnovers, everything like that. And then you just charge a percentage of whatever the property makes every single month. And so that, that last model is how we really scaled at the beginning, because again, I just, I didn't have a lot of cash to get going. So, um, yeah, it's, it's radically changed my life to say the least. Yeah. So let's go back. So seven years ago, you started this business business, but what were you doing before you got into real estate? So I was a CPA for 10 years, right? So I was always good with math. I was always good in school. I always got good grades. And, uh, one of my college professors is actually a business major and, it's funny. One of my most enjoyable classes in college was actually accounting, which sounds so dry, but I had this amazing professor and he really showed me how accounting can tie into the real world and into business and everything else. And he's like, you know, if you really want to set yourself up for success, you have this knack for numbers and understanding these things. You should major in accounting, go work in public accounting, and then you'll be able to write your own ticket. And so that's what I did. I went, um, went, school, got a job at an accounting firm, went back on my MBA, got my CPA license. And from the outside looking in, everything was good. You know, married my beautiful wife. We got a house in the suburbs, a couple cars, like everything's fine. And everything changed when our son was born. He was born with a very rare lung disease called interstitial lung disease. And basically what that means is anytime he fell asleep, he had to be put on oxygen because his oxygen would get dangerously low. And at a certain point, you know, we were doing all these tests and all these clinical trials and everything else at Boston Children's Hospital. And at a certain point, I ran out of vacation time, I ran out of sick time, and I had to leave my wife and my son in this hospital to go back to my cubicle to trade time for money. And I was just crushed. I, I just felt like the biggest failure that I was letting my family down. And I told my wife the day that I left them there, I said, I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I'm going to find a way to build us a business that gives us the income we want without ever trading time for money again. And I knew real estate was going to be the vehicle for that. I had been studying it for years and I had been around people that were doing it. And I just assumed it was going to be through long-term rentals. And when I was doing out the math, you know, typical long-term rental, you'll cash flow anywhere from 200 to say 400 bucks a month. And I'm doing out the math. I'm like, man, this is going to take a lot of properties. I don't know how I'm going to figure this out. And then I met a gentleman in a mastermind group who was doing short-term rentals. And he was telling me that he was making anywhere from a thousand to $2,000 a month on these properties. And I was like, this is, this is the ticket. And I didn't believe him at first. So I made him show me his QuickBooks, um, like a good little accountant. And I was like, holy crap, like this is, this is legit. So I told my wife about it and I was like, this is, this is going to be our ticket. And so I didn't have any cash because we had all those bills, but I had been putting money in a 401k. So we took a loan out of the 401k. Uh, I got a 0% interest credit card and we bought this little two bedroom condo up in the mountains in New Hampshire. Spent about six weeks renovating it ourselves, getting it ready to go. And then, you know, we launched it. And just like this guy showed me, this thing was netting about 1500 bucks a month. And I was like, this is the coolest business ever. I get to, I get paid to own a vacation house. Um, but I can't live off 1500 bucks a month. So how, how do I scale this? How do I grow this? And so 
you know, I thought about, well, there's other property owners out there that are making that two to 400 bucks a month. If I could 10 X that for them, there's plenty of margin in there for me to make money. I'll do all the work. I'll create the listings. I'll even build the furniture. We'll design it, do everything. And I took that idea and ran with it. And like you said, you know, within 15 months, I was able to leave my job. My wife left her job. I retired my mom and we were off to the races. It was, it was a pretty wild ride for the first year and a half. That's amazing. And were a lot of people doing Airbnbs and stuff like that at the time, or were you like trailblazing? Not a lot, not a lot, you know, rental arbitrage where you're renting and re-renting that became super popular. I never did that. Um, nobody was really doing this co-hosting management model back then. Um, everybody was either buying properties or doing this rental arbitrage. It really blew up right after COVID because there was so much pent up demand and then people started talking more about it and, um, they became super, super popular. And it was, you know, my friend Avery Carl, she always says, you know, you could have bought a porta potty and put it on Airbnb from 2020 to 2022 and made money. It was, it was very easy. So yeah, it got really popular a few years after we were in. Gotcha. So how do you go from one to 15 in one year? I, I had no idea what I was doing from a marketing standpoint, right? I was a CPA. I'm good with numbers. I sucked with sales. I could barely talk to people. Um, but I had this fire. I was like, I'm going to figure this out. So I was trying everything. I was going on sites like Craigslist and reaching out to owners that were listing properties for rent and pitching them on this idea about short-term rentals. And I got hundreds upon hundreds of no's um, doing that. I tried, uh, I started hosting a local meetup right in Linfield at the, I don't even know if it's still there, but there was a Capital One Cafe that they let me use for free once a month. And so I started hosting this meetup for six months. And eventually I met a couple people there that gave me a shot. The interesting thing is two out of those six months, not a single person showed up to that meetup. Like literally, it was just me, my projector and this like screen and all the people at Capital One. I could just feel them like, just like, man, they just feel bad for this kid. I'm like, all right, I'll be back next month. I'll see you guys. I would sit there for two hours and I'm just like, I don't care. Like I'm going to figure this out. And so I got one lead off of uh, the Craigslist who ended up turned into a couple properties. I got a couple from that meetup. I was renting a desk at the Staples at the Liberty Tree Mall. They had this like, kind of like a WeWork type thing. So I was renting a desk in there for like 30 bucks a month. And uh, I met a gentleman in there who rented an office. And I thought this guy was a baller because he had an office in the, in the Staples. And he, he gave me a shot. He had just purchased a property in Salem, a duplex. And he was like, hey, I was thinking about this whole Airbnb thing. You know, I've seen you here grinding. I'd rather give you a shot. And so from those first like five, it just snowballed with referrals because I started to get them results like exponentially more than they were getting themselves. So they started referring me to more and more and more and more people. And from that point on, I haven't done any marketing. It's just grown organically through referrals. That's awesome. And we always say on this podcast that a lot of the time it's just showing up. It's the people that are consistent and loyal to their reason why and just keep showing up. They keep networking. It's all the people that just go in, there's a new shiny object, and then after a month they quit. They don't realize that like it took you so many times from going to the Capital One Cafe, all this back work that you were doing. But if you look at your Instagram, it looks like, oh, Mike just crushed it. It yeah, was so it was easy. Just sunshine to, and rainbows. Yeah, but it was, no, it was a commitment that you just stuck with and you just refused to give up because you hung on to your reason why. Yeah, and I want to know, how did your wife feel during this time where you were just starting to take off? 
you had probably had to leave your job, right? With your health insurance and your kid is sick. Like what was going through her head and how did you make the decision to go full in on this right from the beginning? So it's an interesting dynamic. I was on a panel a couple of weeks ago on this, this virtual summit about working with your spouse, right? And again, it wasn't always sunshine and rainbows. So, you know, I was always the one like charging forward. I'm like, we can do this. And she's always the one that kept us level-headed and would reel me in if I was getting too crazy. But what I'll say is if, if you're in that situation, you just got to create that burning desire to change. The mistake that I see most people make and the reason that they don't actually hit their goals is because they don't have a clear reason why, right? Like you guys see it in the fitness space. It's like, oh, I want to lose 20 pounds. Okay. If there's no reason why, and there's no real burning desire, it's going to be challenging for that person. Like you have to go all in and you got to want it because that first phase is going to be very uncomfortable. You're going to be nervous. You're going to be scared. There's going to be risks. You're going to be out of your comfort zone. It's physically going to be challenging for a while. Like you just got to want it bad enough. And people ask me all the time, like, how did you do it? I'm like, I just wanted it more than you did. Like my kid was on oxygen in the hospital. I couldn't be there with him. I would have eaten through a brick wall to like build this thing. So you got to find that fire within you. That's just, I'm not going to stop until I get the deal until I lose the weight until this happens. Too many people quit before they get that final result. It took me nine months to get that first co-host deal after we bought one. Nine months of rejection and rejection and rejection and rejection. I'm like, you can't break me. I'm not stopping. Like this is going to happen, period. When you come at it from that lens, your success is inevitable. I don't care what venture it is, whether it's a health thing, a business thing, a relationship thing, you're, you will win. You just can't quit. I don't know how long it's going to take you. I don't know how tough it's going to be, but if you have that mindset going into it, you will win. It's inevitable. I love that. So how do you, when you go from one to 15 and from 15 to 80, there has to be a lot of processes. And that's something we talk about all the time. We love our processes. People are like, how do you do it? We have a shitload of processes. Everything is documented. Everything is laid out. But at the beginning, did you have all these processes in place when you had those first 15 and you and your wife were kind of managing it? How did that start to transition over the years so that you were able to scale. Talk to us about processes and best practices there. So my, one of my quote unquote superpowers at the beginning was process because that's what I had been doing for 10 years. I was an auditor, right? So I'd go into companies, I'd look at their numbers, but then I was analyzing and making recommendations on how to improve their processes. That was my job for 10 years. So when we started this, I was like, okay, how can I streamline this? Like my the way my brain works, it thinks through that process lens. Cause again, it's great to have all the properties and make the money to leave the job. But the goal was to not trade time for money. The only way that you can do that is to create process and then eventually bring on other people to execute those processes. That's when you get true time freedom. So as we're recording this, I have close to 50 people on my team now across multiple businesses that are executing on processes that we've created over the years so that I can spend my time doing what I like to do. So when you're thinking about it, it, it doesn't have to be complicated. If you're, if you're into it already, it can feel daunting because you're like, oh my God, how many processes am I going to have to create? So what I would say is think about what is the thing right now that takes the most amount of your time that you don't like in your business. And the next time you do it, you're going to document it with the intention that 
somebody else could look at this document and execute it at least 80% as good as you. And then you'd never have to do it again. So I built out it and now it's so easy. There's all this AI out there like Tango and all these different ones that will record your screen and make SOPs for you. But at the time I would just make a Google doc and it'd be like, okay, how to do X. And I would write out step-by-step instructions, take a screenshot of like what I was doing right on the screenshot, like click here, then click here, then type this, then do this. So it was super, super detailed. And then I would record a loom video walking through the same process. So every process had a physical document and a tutorial video on how to do everything in the business. And I built that up over years and that thing gets refined on a weekly basis as we're changing the way we do things or the team is like, Hey, I like doing it this way. It's more efficient. Okay, cool. Just update the doc. So you just build up this database. I think a lot of people think of creating this SOP playbook and then it's just like this dusty binder on the shelf that like, okay, I ticked the box. Now we're good. But if that thing doesn't reflect what you're actually doing in the business, you're just wasting your time. Yeah, that's something that we're constantly working on too, is updating our processes and making things more efficient for our team. And it's a constant ebb and flow as the business grows and the business changes. I'm sure there's been tons of periods of change for you too, as the market changes, as Airbnb becomes more prevalent, more people are aware of it. What are some of the biggest changes that you saw over the last seven years that have affected your business? That's a great question. Yeah, there's these different evolutions that every once in a while you kind of got to blow up a piece of your business and rebuild it. And I remember I was at a mastermind event in Puerto Rico. Um, A friend of mine who was a mentor, he had way more properties than me. I think I had like five or six at the time. It was pretty early. And everybody else there was like a multi seven figure operator. They had hundreds of properties. They were doing real big things. And I remember when I went there, I was thinking I had all of it figured out. And then I'm hanging around with these folks and they're like, dude, if you're only on Airbnb and Verbo, you don't have a business. Like, what are you, what are you even talking about? And it just expanded my thinking of like, okay, well, I got to go back to the drawing board. They're like, you should be using this type of software. You need to be on these platforms. You should have your own direct booking website. Like that's your brand. You need to have a direct booking website. And so at that point, I'm like, man, I got to rethink a lot of this. I got to redesign some processes to make sure everything stays in sync. So if somebody books me on Airbnb, it's going to block that calendar on Expedia and booking.com and my direct booking website and everywhere else. And so that was a big shift. The other big shift came when I started hiring people. Cause in my mind, I'm like, great, I have all these SOPs that are super dialed in. I'm just going to give them the playbook and then they'll be able to do everything in the business. So I went through like four or five employees and I kept firing them after like two or three months. I'm like, this is ridiculous. Like this, I'm just going to, keep doing it myself. And then I had this epiphany. I'm like, it's probably not them. It's probably me. Like something in here is broken. And I started to look at our onboarding process and putting myself in their shoes of if I joined a company and on day one, they just handed me this huge drive folder with hundreds of SOPs in it. And they're like, all right, boss, here you go. Here's what I need you to do. I'd be, I'd feel super overwhelmed. Right. So really dialing in the onboarding process, the training, setting a cadence of when we meet, how to best communicate with me. If you need me for something, here's the best way to get in touch with me. These are the hours that I'm completely out of pocket. It's going to be very challenging to get in touch with me. Just setting standards and expectations and actually investing in your people. 
So as you grow your business, or in my case, as you grow your portfolio, people understand the concept of investing time and money into a property that will make you more time and money. You got to look at your employees the same way. They are your best asset. So you got to invest time and money into those people to get the best out of them and to retain them long-term. So that whole mindset shift of basically becoming a coach for my employees and aligning their goals with the company's goals, that really was, was rocket fuel for a lot of the growth. What are some of the key traits you look for in people that you're hiring and bringing onto your team? For me, it always starts with attitude. Like, are they a good culture fit and are they coachable? I can teach, I've taught hundreds of people, if not thousands at this point on how to do this business. But if you've got a, you know, a crappy mindset and you're a know-it-all or you can't take feedback, it's not going to be a good fit. It's just not going to be a good fit. So I first, first and foremost, we do a culture fit interview before we even, we whittle down the search. They go through a culture fit interview, which whittles them down even more. And then it just depends on the position. So we have, we call it four R docs for every role in the company. So it's, you know, what's the role, what's the responsibilities, what are the results? And I'm drawing a blank on what the fourth one is, but like, it's all of these things that clearly spells out, like, this is what this person is responsible for. So if I'm looking for say an operations manager versus a business development person, those are going to be two very different people. Right. The business development person is going to typically be an outgoing, extroverted people person that can have conversations, that can build rapport quickly. The operations manager might not need to do that. They need to be a lot more process driven, a lot more analytical, a lot more like by the book. So you have to know what what is the role and what type of person is the best fit for this role. And I've spent a bunch of money on um different coaches, like business coaches and recruiters and all these different things to put people through different types of personality assessments to, they're never going to be perfect. And I don't hire based off of this, but it'll give you a good inclination out the gate is, is this role in line with this person's natural strengths and tendencies, or are they going to be pushing the rock uphill and they might get it done for a while, but they're going to burn out. We're just going to take a quick break from this episode to remind you about our one hour long brainstorming sessions. We love chatting about all things business and would love to help you deep dive into the challenges that you're facing and give you fresh ideas in order to reach your goals. Whether you're just starting out or have been in business for years, we'd love to brainstorm with you. Head to businessmusclepodcast.com to book. Yeah, that's so interesting. I'm sure it was quite a learning process for you going from doing everything yourself into having this giant team. You said now you have 50 employees. Yeah. So what did your, what does your management look like now where you have such a big team versus in the beginning, I'm sure you could do a lot of the training yourself, get to know everyone on an individual basis. How is that different from what things look like for your weeks now? So now there's, there's just a lot more infrastructure and hierarchy, which has made my life so much easier. And at the beginning, you're not going to have the revenue to do this, but as you scale, I highly encourage you to, to make those investments because it's going to make your life easier and you're going to go a lot further. But now we'll have like a sales director, a marketing director, an operations director, and then some key employees like in that line. And then we'll have different staff under each of those. So I'll only have say seven or eight direct reports to me out of those 50. You know what I mean? So then each of those managers and directors have direct reports under them. So 
it makes your life a lot easier and it creates a lot of clarity around like, okay, what are the KPIs and benchmarks that you know you're winning? Like we're basing your performance based on these things. So it, it creates alignment in each part of the organization so that they know if they're winning or not and it's driving the bus in the right direction. We love KPIs. Is that something you go through with your team like quarterly, weekly, like weekly. not you, you do it weekly? Weekly. We need to start amping up our meetings. We do yeah, we monthly. Do. And Ariel knows I love Excel. So we have Excel sheets for everything. Like you, I was an accountant. I was an auditor at KPMG. So I live in Excel. I didn't know that about you. Yeah. So that's okay. what I did before I quit my job. Um, so I love Excel. We wrote, made our website in Excel. So everything's in Excel. But KPIs weekly, that's interesting. Most people don't even look at KPIs till the end of the year. But weekly is great because then they're actually working towards something when you have the target. You know, like your tasks are actually directly relating to something that's moving the needle. Exactly. And that's how we like. And you can gauge if you're on or off track. Mm -hmm. So it's like, okay, if you're off track on this, how are you going to fix it? What's, what's the solution? And you Mm -hmm. start to, to trust your team and empower them to start thinking for themselves. At the beginning, I felt like I had to solve every problem. Now I just hire smart people that can solve those problems and tell me what we should do. Yep. And we like to look for people that actually care about the KPIs and they take ownership of it. So they're almost like competitive with their own numbers. And so they look at their numbers probably before we even do, and they know when a conversation's coming, but it's good. Like they actually have control over their job and where the direction of the company is going. So I think it's great. So you also use virtual assistants, which is something we don't use, but I feel like more and more people are starting to use those. How did you get into that world of virtual assistants? Do you recommend it to people? When do you recommend people start using them? I've been using them for years. They're they're amazing. Um, and it's funny, like sometimes you talk about them, it's like they're not humans. They're humans. They just live somewhere else in the world, right? So <laughs> they are humans. They are capable of a lot. Um, just understanding some of the cultural differences, right? So we work with a lot of virtual assistants in the Philippines, They've got a work ethic that's unbelievable. They can work and work and work and they never complain. At a certain point though, I started to realize one of the issues was they didn't want to bother me. So they would let these things linger that they had questions about or they were nervous to make a decision about because they didn't want to bother me. And so I had to create this environment that it's okay to ask me questions. There's not a dumb question. But when I answer your question, I want you to write down what I say so I don't have to answer the same question twice, mm-hmm. right? So it's creating this, this environment that it's okay for them to reach out to you um, and just setting that expectation. And it's just a cultural thing. But, you know, we've used them to run operations on the portfolio. They're on the other side of the world and they're running a lot of properties right now for us. So it, it absolutely works. You just have to understand some of the cultural differences. And just like if you're going to hire somebody here, you have to invest time with them. You have to. What would you say to somebody that's looking to get into it, hire their first VA, and they're nervous that they're just going to somebody randomly across the country? What's like the best practice to actually get into it? Do you have, I guess, companies or a place to start that you recommend, or is it just trial and error? I mean, at this point, I just built my own VA recruiting company because <laughs> we were so hiring so Mike. many. Um, but there was a, if you're in the real estate space, I can definitely help you with that. But otherwise, there's sites like um, Virtual Staff Finder, um, 
Upwork, a lot of a lot of sites like that. There's onlinejobs.ph. The the challenge I found with a lot of those is you put a job post out and you'll get thousands of applicants. And so it was very time consuming and challenging to try and whittle that down to see who is actually a legitimate candidate for this position. The best advice I would give is do that cultural fit interview first to see if you think this person is even going to drive. Like, is this even a good culture fit person for our company? If you don't know what your culture is, you got to figure that out. Um, and then from that point, I like to give them some type of test, right? So a couple of year, year and a half ago, we took our accounting in-house and I hired a bookkeeper from the Philippines. So one of the things that we did is I gave her kind of like dummy access to like a fake QuickBooks file. And I was like, here's these transactions. I need you to categorize them and run these reports for me. So I'll give them some type of actual test to test their skill level in a certain area. And I like to throw one little wrinkle in there to see if they catch it or not. Um, so that way, you know, every most people in this day and age, for the most part, can put together a decent interview, right? Like, but it's like, is that the person I'm actually getting like once, once they start? You just got to go out and do it. And you're probably going to make some bad hires and just know that it's okay. You just let them go and you go back and you do it again. You know, one of the things about, one of the lessons I learned is I was always a great student. I had a 4.0 in college, all these things. The real world doesn't work that way. There's not always a right answer. And my perfectionism held me back for a long time because I was so afraid to make mistakes or take certain risks because I'm like, well, what if I do the wrong thing? Well, if I do nothing, I'm guaranteeing I'm going to lose. So I might as well just go for it and then just learn from those mistakes. Yeah. And a lot of times being a business owner is about just being vulnerable and letting yourself make those mistakes, just putting yourself out in the world. I'm sure that you had to do that a ton with your social media, which let's talk about that because you've grown it now to over 90,000 followers, which is incredible. Where did you even start with that? I just started making content. And I'm sure if you go way back and look at the stuff that I was putting out a long time ago, right? I've evolved. I've gotten better. I've worked on this. I've done Toastmasters. I've done public speaking classes. I've done all these things to just sharpen that sword because I sucked at it at the beginning. I just did. I, I wasn't I wasn't good at it. And so um, the key is, is to Anytime I do a video or like next week I'll be doing our conference, anytime I, I go do something like that, I just remind myself the reason I'm doing this is to genuinely help people. So when I get out of my own head and I'm worried about what I'm going to say and how I'm going to look and I focus more about I just want to help somebody because I felt trapped seven years ago and I didn't know another way out. When I focus on helping people, it gets me out of my own head and the message is always way better than if I'm focused on me and how I look and what I say and did I say it right. It, that never goes over well. So if you just focus on adding value, like my theme throughout the whole thing, I never paid for advertising. I never had any paid media growing these companies. I just focused on giving as much value as humanly possible. And when you put enough good energy out, it comes back to you. Yep. And that's how I found you is on social media. So I bought an Airbnb three years ago, basically when everybody was probably buying them, like you said, in a gunquit and it was running great. It still is running great, 
But like you, like I wanted to nail down processes. I wanted to take this from a nice little Airbnb and just kill it. And so I was looking at all podcasts, the bigger pockets, everything. I found yours. And then I found your Instagram and just what you said and how you said it and your whole attitude about it, what happened with your son, it just resonated with me. And that's when I found your mastermind. And so I decided I'm just going to invest in this. I think investing in learning is super important. Even if this wasn't going to be my full-time career, I want to I don't like half-assing things. So if I was going to do this Airbnb, I wanted it to be the best Airbnb in Agunquit. And so that's how I found you. And your course was amazing. So can we talk about your mastermind a little bit for people that don't like maybe know what a mastermind is and what yours is particularly? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've spent a lot of money, a lot of money on different courses and programs and masterminds over the years. And some of them were great and some of them were trash, right? So I, I cherry picked and I, I analyzed, okay, what made, what got me the results the fastest? And it tended to be three key areas. So one was creating a program, like a video course that was easy to follow because I've been in certain programs where there's just so much content that it's overwhelming instead of empowering. So I'm like, how do I, how do I whittle this down to the most simple explanation possible that can take somebody that has no experience and by the end help them build a six or seven figure business if they want to and everything in between. And if you think about it, there's just really like six different steps along this journey that you have to nail down. So the first piece was creating a, an easy to digest course. Then the second piece was creating an environment where people could ask me questions. So when I launched it, you know, I was doing live coaching calls. I was doing one-on-one -on -one calls. I was just trying to help people. So if they were going through the course and they had a question, they would just reach out to me. At this point, we have, I think, eight different coaches that have all gone through the program. They've all created at least 20K a month in cash flow, and now they've come back as coaches. So a lot of that falls on them now. And then I focus on our, our boardroom, which is a, a different level mastermind. But the second thing was just access to the coaches because I don't care what program it is. I don't care how good those videos are. People are going to have questions. Each situation is going to be a little different. So you need to create an outlet for them to get those questions answered quickly. And then the third thing was a community. So when you're starting something new, you're excited about it, but there's this thought in the back of your mind of, is this really going to work? Like, can I really do this? Or is this Airbnb thing even, even going to work for me? But when you're in a community of like-minded people that you're seeing them hit these results and get and hit their goals over and over and over again, it starts to create this belief in yourself. It's like inception. It's just like, I see all these other people that are just like me getting results. It creates a belief in you that you can get the results. And then you can partner on deals or do whatever. But the program, the coaching, and the community, those are the three building blocks that we use to really scale this over the last five years now that I've been teaching it. I can't say enough good things about it. So if you're out there and you have an Airbnb or you're looking to get into it, you break down the processes so that even if you're not a process person and like Excel or anything like that's scary for you, you break it down for people so they know where to get started. And it's, I think how you laid it out was perfect. When people ask me like what my number one piece of advice is, when I look at their listings, I'm like, you need to change your photos. Like the photos need to look better. I can't I feel like there's just too much competition now, at least in a Gunkwit, where there's nice beach rentals. 
I just feel like when you look like the first impression and that's where I think mine did well from the beginning because it had nice photos and I just wanted to look like a clean business. What were some, what are some tips that you tell people that are just getting started that these couple of things you got to do if you want to be successful? You got to invest in design, right? Where we're recording this right now. What did I say? The first thing I said in here, I was like, this is beautiful. It looks stunning. Right. And so that is what, there's a lot of talk out there. Yes. You got to level up your marketing. Your marketing gets a lot easier when you have a good property in a good area and you invest in good design because it just shows well. So one of the things that I focused on, again, marketing was never my background in anything. I just focused on finding good properties in good areas and investing in the right design. My wife's an incredible designer. She's designed hundreds of these now for us and for hundreds of mastermind students all over the world at this point. She's really good at helping people stand out in their listings. You have to be unique. You're right. It is way more competitive now than when I got in. And I look at some of the first properties that we listed. I'm like, we got to do a refresh on a lot of these because they're not up to par on where they need to be now. So making sure that the property stands out, getting really good photos, and then treat it like a business, right? You can treat this thing like a hobby, which a lot of people do. And the majority of the horror stories that you hear from guests about short-term rentals and Airbnbs is, you know, I was getting a haircut the other day and my barber was like, yeah, I've tried that a couple of times. And, you know, I went there and, you know, the mattress was terrible and I had a bad back. And then I went and tried the other bedroom and that mattress was terrible. And then the TV didn't work. And the host was like, yeah, I'll see if I can get to it. But, you know, whatever. Like the biggest risk to this industry, and I've said this for years, is the lack of consistency and experience. If you go book a Marriott, you know what you're getting. If you book a Motel 6, you know what you're getting. You book a property on Airbnb, you can look at the reviews, but sometimes it's just not what you're getting. So part of the reason why I've been teaching it selfishly, one, I love to teach, but two, it's like we have to create like a standard of what minimum you have to do to give a good experience. Because if you don't, you're not going to be in this business for very long. They're going to torch you in reviews. You're going to get frustrated. You're going to waste a whole bunch of money on a property because you didn't invest in the right things and actually care about your guest. Yes, this business can make you a lot of money, but if you don't genuinely care about the guest, you're not going to be in it very long. There's a, a great book that came out recently called Unreasonable Hospitality. Uh, the guy that wrote it is the owner of, oh my God, I can't, it's a restaurant, um, Madison and Fifth. It's the number one restaurant in the world. So even if you're not in real estate, if you are a business owner at all, read this book. And it just talks about how can you do those little things to go above and beyond that leave lasting impressions that get people chatting about you forever, right? He talked about this couple that was in from somewhere in South America or Europe, and they had just gotten snow in New York City. So they had never seen snow before. Their kids had never seen snow before. So we had the staff run out while they were having dinner and go buy sleds for the kids at the store and bring them back. And then told them, hey, go to this park and take your kids sledding over here. Like, that's unreasonable hospitality. How many people do you think they told that story to when they got home? Like, if you did those little things in your business, it would explode. It would explode because those are memories that people will remember forever. 
Yeah, that's so important. People remember those types of things. And speaking of hotels, you've gone from now all of these short-term rentals, but now you just opened the Cove in Salem, um, which is super exciting. And how are you implementing some of those things into your new hotel business? The cool, th- like hotels are amazing. So I've had I've had the pleasure of this is our, our third one. I we got our first one in 2020. Um, I had a couple partners on that. And then in 2021, uh, I was managing another one. And then in the end of 2022, we closed on this, this last one and we've been putting a lot of time and and energy into renovating it. The same principles apply though, invest in amazing design to stand out. So we, we went in, did some, my wife did an incredible job with a lot of the designs. And then we took 10 rooms and did these wild immersive themed rooms, like over the top, like there's a, an ice castle room where there's epoxy floors that look like ice. And we had these custom like ice sculptures made on this. It feels like you're in an ice cave when you're in there and it's super cool and families love it. The kids love it. They feel like they're in the frozen movie. So we did 10 of these very unique themed rooms there and people love it. And nobody else around here has that, right? So how do you stand out from your competition? Um, And then it's the same thing, just making sure that they have a good experience and setting up processes to make sure that you can deliver the same experience over and over and over again. That that's what it's all about. You're making processes. When I, I remember when I was really scaling up, we got over, I don't know, 20 something properties. And I remember people giving me, giving me some flack in different groups of like, well, you can't just grow this business that big because you're going to lose that personal touch. And I was like, you don't understand business at all. I don't have to be the one writing these notes. I can have my cleaners write the notes. I can have my contractors write the notes. I can have like, there's other people. If you create a culture of unreasonable hospitality and you instill that in your business, it's not you doing those things. It's your team executing on those things. So it's the same thing as you scale up from single families to commercial to whatever business you're in. It comes down to culture and what are the values and principles of this business? I want to get into a couple of questions about the whole environment now with the Airbnbs and all the regulations. So I got my first one in a gunquit and then I started to look in other areas and quickly, like even in the mastermind, people are like, oh, that area, there's already been laws where you have to like dwell, like you have to at least have 50% dwelling there. I feel like a lot of the towns now are starting to crack down on the short-term rentals whether that's being pushed down by the hotels or whoever in the town. Mm -hmm. Do you think that people are going to start to veer away from Airbnbs or where do you think the future of like the Airbnb, I call it Airbnb, but the short-term rentals industry is going? Do you think it's going more to the boutique hotels or you think it's still got a lot of life left? No, I think it's got a lot of light left. I also, life left, (laughs) light and life. Um, But I think it's going to deter a lot of people, which in my point of view is a good thing, right? When you have, uh, barriers to entry, it's a good thing. And I think a lot of people are going to get out over the next couple of years because they haven't leveled up their properties and it's not as easy as it was over the last few years to just throw anything up there and make a lot of money. Um, when you're looking to expand, one of the things, one of the first things I look for is what are the regulations? And if there are regulations in place, to me, that's a bonus because you know what the rules are. The challenge is if you go into a place that there are no regulations, you don't know what might be coming down the the, the pipe. So 
that's just, it's, it's a, a risk that you have to have contingencies for, right? So if I go buy a property in some town that has no regulations, one of the things that I'll do is, can I make this work as a midterm rental, meaning like 30 plus day stays or a long-term rental and not lose money, at least like break even. So I'm not losing money. So having those contingency plans, if this hits the fan, how do I get out or at least like not lose money? So when you, when you do it from that lens, you always want to have multiple exit strategies when you're doing real estate. And that's basically what Allie, my mastermind coach said too. She was like, this is a good thing. A lot of the people are going to back out. Like you said, they're not going to want to deal with this. And there's tons of areas that are still like fully open. And if they have regulations, it's very STR friendly. So don't get discouraged if you're somebody looking to get in. If somebody is looking to get in, where do you recommend people start now? Do you think that they should just start with co-hosting? Do you think they should? Is there a best like entry point you think? So what, what I'll say on that is it's going to depend on what your financial situation looks like. If you're going to start with the co-hosting route, and this is not a plug for my coaching or anybody's coaching, you need to get some type of education on this business. Because if you don't, you're gambling with somebody else's property. And to me, that's just not okay. If you want to gamble with your own money and learn with your own money, cool. Don't do it with somebody else's money and pretend that you know what you're doing. So if you're going to go the co-hosting route, make the investment in yourself and then go all in on that route. If you want to do try it out yourself and buy a property, absolutely go do it. But if you're going to play with other people's properties and other people's money, get educated, right? You look at any other industry, you want to go be a stockbroker. You got to get all these licenses and all this education because you're dealing with other people's money in their retirement. Same thing here. They just haven't put anything in place. So go get educated, be responsible. If you're going to go, go that route. And it's just going to make things so much easier for you. Yeah, I was manually running the Agunquit Airbnb and well, we have it on a bunch of other things too in direct bookings, but manually doing everything. I was sending them, I had it copied, but I would copy and paste the message. I would change the codes. And then when I took your course, everything was just optimized. And like, I was like, this is what I needed. This is, they're speaking my language. I just didn't know, didn't have time at the time to research all these backend systems. And you make it so simple that once you put this in, I barely have to look at it. My cleaners have the thank you notes that we give and the welcome baskets and everything just runs behind the scenes and very rarely knock on wood. Do I actually have to get involved? And it was because I actually went out and took a course and learned it and spent the time, even if it wasn't going to be my full-time gig. So I highly recommend it if you're thinking about doing any of the ways he said to do it is to look into his course or somebody else's like you need to get educated. Like he said, I can't speak highly enough about it. Definitely. So now you have lots of things, lots of balls flying in the air, lots of things that you manage. You have your courses, your boutique hotels, your short-term rentals. You also have a son at home and another baby on the way. How do you manage everything? What's some of your secrets and tips that you would give someone else who's managing this many things? I've got an amazing team. Like there's no chance we're doing this podcast at whatever one o'clock on a Tuesday. If I don't have an amazing team, like it just doesn't happen. So, um, you know, huge shout out to everybody on the team on all the teams, because they're the reason, you know, again, my, my primary goal wasn't to build all this wealth and do all this stuff. I'm super blessed that it's, it's continued to grow and do all these things. But my goal was I wanted to be able to to spend my time the way I wanted it and do things with my family and be there for them when they needed me. So 
I am, I'm pretty ruthless with my calendar and I actually just made a, a journal for the, for the mastermind. I'll, I'll send it to you. We're just getting them printed up, but, um, that breaks down how I manage my time and how, how I stay effective. And so for me, it comes down to having clarity around where you're going and what your goals are first and foremost, that's your North star. And then every single Sunday I'll sit down, I'll review my goals. I'll look at my schedule for the week and I'll write down one to three things that if I got those done, it'll really move the needle towards my goals. And then I'll write down all the other stuff that I got to do, all the different meetings I got to be on and everything else that I got to do. And then I'll put them in my calendar. And the way that I've, I've set up my schedule is I stack all of my meetings on Tuesdays and Thursdays. I don't do meetings on Monday, Wednesday, or Friday. Oh, I shouldn't say that. I have one meeting on Friday morning with the, a bunch of the property teams just because of the overlapping schedules. But on Tuesdays and Thursdays, I stack all those meetings. So then on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, that's my time to focus on what I want to focus on, whether it's creating new content, getting ready for our conference uh, next week, or just hanging out with my family, right? Like Wednesdays, every day I drop my son off at school. And then on Wednesdays, I get to take him to basketball. On Thursdays, I take him to drum lessons and then we'll hang out and just play for a few hours, right? So I've, I've designed, I talk about designing your perfect average day because when you're setting goals, you know, I've asked thousands of people at this point, like, what's your goal? And then I'll ask why. And they say, well, I want to be financially free and I want to travel. And I'm like, cool. Are you going to travel full time? And they're like, well, no. I'm like, okay, so what does your perfect average day look like? What's your perfect average Tuesday look like? And for me, it's, it's pretty simple. Like it's nothing extravagant in the summer months. I'll golf twice a week. I'll golf on Wednesdays and Fridays. Like that's what I love to do. So like I'll golf twice a week and then it's just family time and doing the stuff that I love to do, which is teach and content. Like I just genuinely like doing it. So that's what I spend my time doing. Um, so you just got to decide for you, what type of lifestyle do you want to have? And what does your perfect average day look like? And if you're working a job right now and you're trying to get out and build your business and get out of your job, okay, well, your schedule is going to look a lot different than mine. What I will say is when I was in my job, I was working 60 hours a week as an accountant. I had my kid in the hospital I was visiting and I had a side hustle as a photographer and I was building this thing up. There's not a lot of hours left after all that. So again, going back to process and systems, I'm like, how can I create a system that I can squeeze out as much as I can with these remaining hours? So I would get up earlier in the morning. I was working in Waltham at the time and the traffic was terrible. So I'd drive in at like five. I'd get to the office. I'd go for a run. There was like a wooded trail behind the office. I'd go for a three mile run, come in, stretch, shower up. I'd be at my desk by like seven at the latest. And then I'd have a good hour before anybody else got to the office. So I'd be prospecting, like scouring the internet, going on Craigslist, Zillow, anywhere else. Where can I get leads right now? And then at lunchtime, I take 30 minutes. Everybody would go to the cafeteria and eat together. I'm like, I love you guys, but I got to catch up on whatever. I'd have another 30 minutes at lunch. And then at night, after everybody went to bed, I'd have another 30 to 60 minutes and I'd get up and I'd do it all over again the next day. So I was cranking long hours, but it was a priority. It was a burning desire. So just know it might feel like an uphill battle right now, but just be clear about that vision you have and it'll pull you through all that.
Yeah, I think that's the the behind the scenes that a lot of people don't realize when they see this incredible business that you've built over the last seven years. They don't see the the phase that went on behind the scenes before then. It's really amazing. Yeah, we always talk about like seasons. At the beginning, people think that they're quitting their job to work less. And I'm like, oh, no. Oh, no. This is the season of hustle. This is the season you have to build out everything. Build out your team. Build out your process. You need to put the hours in because you don't have anything else to give. You don't really have experience. You probably don't have money. So what you have is your time with the hope that eventually you start to build everything out and then you get to step back and that you're not the business, you're running the business. But at the beginning, it's not like that. And so I love that you told that story about how like every hour you were grinding around your nine to five, you were making it happen. Because a lot of people we do talk to, they're like, well, I need to quit my job first before I can do it. I'm like, no, you can get out and network now. You could go to Capital One and set up a meetup group and wait there for people, like you said, to come meet and like network with. But a lot of people don't have that drive. But the people that make it have it. They make it happen because there's no other option. So I love that. Before we get into your future plans, I want to talk about interest rates and your talk and your take on that because obviously we were spoiled for a long time, right? Mm-hmm. When I bought this house, I cried when I had to give up my old interest rate. I'm like, ugh. So what is your take on interest rates when investing? Does it scare you away? Do you feel like this is the time if you have the capital that you're going to get some good deals? Or what is your take on that? I love it. So, and it, it sounds like hyperbole, but hear me out here. Okay. So you go back to 2021, 2022. If, you know, we bought a property in Orlando, uh, you had no, you had no leverage, right? I got this as an off market deal. I was able to lock it up, but a lot of the students, you know, they're putting in 20, 30, 40 offers to just get one property. People were paying 50, a hundred, 200,000 all cash, no contingencies, no inspections, no nothing. I don't care if there's issues. I'm going to pay you 200 grand more than you want for this thing. Cause I want this and I don't need financing. I'll just pay all cash. It was brutally competitive because everybody wanted to get into real estate. There was so much money in the economy that were just pumping it in that everybody had money and they wanted to get into real estate. Now, if you look, yes, interest rates are higher, right? We just bought our dream house back in July. Interest rate was cringeworthy, right? It was brutal. Mm-hmm. However, the cool thing is at some point, those interest rates are going to drop and I'm going to refinance it at a much lower interest rate. But because those interest rates were so high, I want to do the math here. I I won't throw the dollar out, but I negotiated 20% off of what they wanted. This is a lot. This is a big purchase. Mm -hmm. So it saved a lot of money because the interest rates were higher and the property was sitting. So like you have a lot more negotiating power now because a lot less people are going out to buy properties. But when those rates drop, the value of the property is going to go up. You're going to refinance that out and your payments are going to go down and you'll have more equity. So for me, it's like, goes back to what Warren Buffett says, be greedy when everyone else is fearful and be fearful when everyone else is greedy. So I'm, I'm excited about the next 12 to 18 months. And you'll, my prediction is, is once they're going to start creeping those rates down, the, the prices, the interesting thing is the prices haven't dropped that much. They have a little bit, but not a ton. You have more negotiating power now, but the listing prices haven't dropped that much. If they keep 
if they're going to reduce the rates like they're talking about doing in 2024, the prices are going to go higher. They just will. Because then there's going to be like, oh, I can get in now. And then there's going to be more people out there. It's all economics. It's just supply and demand. This last year was kind of this weird point of nobody wanted to sell their house because they didn't want to give up the 3% interest rate. And nobody wanted to buy because the interest rate was so high. So there was this middle ground of people selling because they were motivated for whatever reason, you know? So you just had a lot more, had a lot more negotiating power. When you went to buy your house recently, I said to you, marry the house, date the interest rate. Like don't get stuck on the interest rate because it's going to change. Eventually you can refinance. And I mean, that was something for you. You were like, Oh, I was terrified. Yeah. But But we did, we ended up getting it way under the listed price as well because there were just wasn't as much competition because the interest rates were so high but the seller ended up get, giving us a credit to buy it down so now we're in at a little bit lower rate for the first year get comfortable with this new mortgage but i'm so glad that we did that and yeah eventually we'll be able to refinance and it's going to be fine yeah and if you were looking at that house during covid there would have been 60 offers on the house right like you said and it would have been people going 80 over asking in wakefield and you wouldn't you might not even throw an offer in so yep everything happens for a reason So now you have over 80 properties, you have three boutique hotels, you run an awesome mastermind, you have an awesome podcast, you have a conference coming up, you're not busy at all. So what's next? What's the future? So we're down to two hotels now. Oh, two hotels now. Just two. Oh, Um, slacker. Yeah, I know. I'm I'm getting a breather. (laughs) Um, For me, you know, we've we've got a new baby coming in like a month. So I've already prepped the teams that I'm going to be taking at least a month off. I've never unplugged for that long. We'll see if I make it that long. I'm probably going to be bored out of my mind, but um, I'm looking forward to just spending some good quality time. Like you said, everything's seasons, right? In the last quarter has been a a grind season, just a lot of stuff going on um, really the last six months. And so I'm looking forward to that time to just recharge, um, spend some time with the family, welcome the new baby in, and, um, and then I'll get back at it. But I, we've got some, some stuff, you know, we're still finishing the Salem project. We got half of it done last year, uh, probably about another year to finish the other half. So excited about that. And then we've got some other stuff in the pipeline, some, some uh, development stuff that we're working on. Um, and I'd like to, I'd like to get another vacation house, like so. And it, it sounds weird, like it's a vacation. It's an investment property that will make us money. But I'm like, where else would we like to go mm-hmm. and stay that where the numbers make sense? Right. What so, areas are you looking at? We're going back and forth right now. So my my wife loves the Outer Banks. She used to go as a kid. And I've never been, So and I love the TV show. So I'm like, I want to go. I don't even know if it was actually filmed there. But anyway, um, the only thing is it's kind of a pain in the butt to get to from Boston. Um, speaking of what she's calling me, um, I like there, I, I love Florida. I mean, we go to Orlando quite a bit cause we've got that house down there. I wouldn't mind getting something on the Gulf side. The beaches over there are amazing. My brother's got a place on 30A up in the panhandle and it's, it feels like you're in Aruba. It's incredible. But again, it's a pain to get to. So I don't know. We haven't really decided, but I think we'll, we'll do something by the end of the year, some, somewhere else. Well, we love to end every interview with our fast five questions. So just five quick questions. What is one non-negotiable thing that you do every single day? 
read and journal every day. And what is one bucket list place you'd like to travel to? Dubai. What are three traits that you think every entrepreneur should have? Ooh, drive, vision, and positive attitude. What's the best or worst piece of business advice you've ever received? Ooh, uh, I'll go, I don't know if it's the best, but something popped up when I was going through all those hires and getting frustrated. It was like hiring and firing and hiring and firing. And if you've ever read the E-Myth by Michael Gerber, he talks about it in that book, right? Where it's just like, oh, everybody's dumb. Nobody can do this as good as me, blah, 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 right? And you go through the poor me's. And I remember venting to a friend of mine who's also an entrepreneur. And he was like, you know what, man? If they were you, they wouldn't be working for you. So why are you holding them to the same level that you're holding yourself at for your business? That that's They're never going to live up to that expectation, dude. They don't own your business. You do. So you're always going to care more than anybody else in your organization. So figure out how else you can keep them motivated, but don't put them on the same level as you because otherwise they'd be the one owning the business. Well said. And if you could go back and give yourself one piece of advice, so you're just starting out, you're still working your full-time job, you're trying to plug in your little piece, your little hours here and there where you can get this thing off the ground, what's one piece of advice you'd give yourself then? The only thing that's going to take you to the next level has nothing to do with your technical skills. It has everything to do with your self-image. And so I would, I'd give myself the book Psycho-Cybernetics, and I would just say to focus on visualizing my success over and over again so it creates that belief in myself. Awesome. Well, why don't you let everyone know where they can find you, where they can find your mastermind? Yeah. So I'm on Instagram at the Airbnb guy. Uh, our website is STR, like short-term rental, strsecrets.com. I'm on Facebook, YouTube. Um, we've got our short-term rental wealth conference next week. Super excited. We've got over 2,000 people coming in from all over the world. I get to interview Damon John on stage, which I'm really excited about. I've looked up to him for a long time. Um, and yeah, I mean, if you go online, you'll, you'll find me pretty much everywhere at this point. So. Awesome. You guys know where to find us. We're businessmusclepodcast.com on Instagram at businessmusclepodcast and I'm dralldpt. And you can find Elisa at Elise Kara. We'll see you guys next week. You just finished another episode of the Business Muscle Podcast. If you found value in this episode, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Your reviews mean the world to us and help us reach other listeners who can make a big impact in the business world. Don't forget to join our Business Muscle Podcast Facebook group where you can ask questions and chat with other like-minded entrepreneurs. Stay tuned for our next episode where we'll bring you more expert advice and practical strategies to help you thrive. Thank you for being a part of the Business Muscle community and we'll catch you in the next episode.